Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello, my name is John Denny. I'm a research professor at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. Today is Monday, September 21st, and I'm joined by a colleague at SSI, Dr. Tony Pfaff, and Colonel J.P. Clark, uh, who is currently uh, with the Army staff at the Pentagon. Uh, The two of them have uh, recently published a study that they've led a research team on entitled Striking the Balance, U.S. Army Force Posture in Europe 2028. Now, Tony Pfaff, my colleague at SSI, is the research professor for strategy, the military profession, and ethic. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Colonel J.P. Clark holds a Ph.D. in history from Duke University. And as I mentioned, he's currently working for the Army staff as the chief of the strategy division. Uh, For those of you that are familiar with uh, Army lingo, that's Demo SSP. So I've invited the two of them here to talk about this recent study they've They've led the research team uh, in putting together. Uh, it came out just about uh, two or three months ago now. You can find it at the SSI website, which is ssi.armywarcollege.edu. And it addresses force posture in Europe, obviously, through the next decade or so. So, uh, JP and uh, Tony, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, John. Glad to be here. All right, guys, let's start. Uh, give me a little bit of background first on the study. What was the genesis of this study? Uh, who comprised the research team, and, and how did you begin to put this this together? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one because I was around there. I was around from the beginning. The um, uh, Secretary of the Army actually picked the topic out of the key key issue, uh, the key strategic issue list, uh, as one he was particularly interested in at that time. Uh, there was a lot of questions about whether or not the posture uh, U.S. forces and U.S. Army forces in particular uh, more forward in Eastern Europe, uh, because there was also a lot of concern about, you know, potential Russian adventurism uh, and aggression. So uh, we were, so SSI got asked to uh, uh, take that one on. Uh, I, I agreed to, uh, uh, I, I agreed to uh, take lead on it initially. And um uh, Went about recruiting. I recruited from the pool of students who had UCOM experience, and we got six highly qualified uh, ones to help out with that. Uh, but we also got some help from the faculty, uh, uh, including from uh, Joel Hillison, Craig Morrow, and John Mauchem, who are uh, cited in the study. Uh, they were a big help in mentoring the students as we tried to answer the question. Um, and as far as you know, getting it started, the simple question had been already answered by the Army staff the, uh, uh, and others and a number of other think tanks. And uh, what would it really take to, you know, to stop Russian aggression? Uh, the thing is, those studies were all typically in an unconstrained, um, uh, uh, unconstrained resources. And we wanted to look at and answer the question from the secretary's point of view, because the secretary has to make these decisions about force posture in the context of global responsibilities. Uh, which will necessarily constrain resources. And so that's sort of how we set up the problem uh, and got started. 
All right. Well, let's talk broadly now about the subject matter. Tell me, what what are some of the key issues, before we dive into the challenges uh, that the Army and the U.S. and allies face in Europe and and, uh, address some of the recommendations, let's talk broadly about what are some of the key issues uh, that we face when dealing with Army posture in Europe or or anywhere, really? What are some of those main issues? That's a great question, and there are really kind of two aspects for it. Before I get into those, I should say that uh, I would, my participation in this study was part of uh, my duties at SSI. I had not yet come over to the Army staff, and so I don't want to uh, let people you know, get the wrong uh, idea that the, all the ideas I'm going to express are those that I had as part of the uh, study and not currently you know, Army position on anything. Uh, the War Plans Division Chief, who uh, sits uh, right across the pit from me, uh, that's his lane, and so I'm not going to presume to uh, to give the, uh, the official army position. But uh, so going back to your question, there are really kind of two aspects. We have uh, some that you can put into the problems, the conceptual problems of developing a framework for for doing our, our trade offs, and as you said, our study is called striking the balance. And then there's also another bin of problems uh, or things you have to consider in terms of the difficulty of implementation. Now, so taking the conceptual aspect first. Uh, you really, you know, the problem is you can only have one force posture. Yeah, you know, you only have one single array of forces, uh, and that's, you know, has to be ready to be put to the test against a whole range of, of different possible futures. So, how much do you design your force posture to just one of those, or how much do you hedge across all of those different possibilities? Is is the, the big conceptual problem, and you can almost think of this in terms of, you know, we can call it conceptual axes. Uh, one of those is which missions you're going to and try to design your force posture for within the theater. And so in our study, uh, we really kind of focus on armed conflict and then competition, which, of course, a lot of the, the force posture is going to work uh, for you know, a lot of things we can put into theater will be uh, of use for both comp- competition below armed conflict uh, and armed conflict. Uh, but some are not so so useful for one or the other. And when you have you know, what we call this downward gravity of a, of a force cap, then you have to make some decisions about where you're going to optimize your force to in terms of missions. But then when you look at it from the Army perspective, and so the SEC Army's perspective, where you have multiple regions around the world, how many of your chips do you want to put down on Europe and, and how much do you want to play elsewhere? And so that's kind of the second axis of, you know, dividing force posture uh, among regions, but there's also a, a, a temporal aspect. And so this third dimension is of time. And you know, most of these things that we were considering require some exertion by the army. And so they, you know, how hot do you want to run the force and how much do you want to, you know, of its capacity do you want to leave in reserve for, for surge, for you know, crisis and, and response either in Europe or elsewhere. And so those are kind of the three uh, elements that you have to balance among uh, as you come up with a just, you know, a conceptual idea. But then there's always the hard problem of, of actually putting the, the force posture into place. Uh, you know, so what will our allies and partners support? Uh, what is feasible in terms of domestic politics? What is the cost of, of changing from what we currently have? You know, there's a, there's a fiscal cost, but there's also a bandwidth cost. If you want the Army to change the way it's doing things, then it requires senior leader action and staff, staff time and support. All of these, you know, there are, are in finite quali- uh, quantities. So when you bring together all of these, these, these two kind of buckets of issues, the conceptual uh, need to balance between valid competing demands among missions, regions, and op tempo, and then constraints of implementation, you actually have a pretty limited decision space, as we've found. Well, let's talk about 
one thing you mentioned in particular, JP, was this uh, the challenge of preparing uh, in terms of force posture for multiple futures, right? Let's talk about this in the context of the primary challenge that the U.S. and its allies face in Europe today, namely Russia. So what kind of assumptions did you guys make about what the Russian challenge looks like over the next decade as you tried to forecast or create a framework, I should say, uh, for this between now and 2028? Yeah, um, another great question. And we actually had a number of, I call them findings, uh, uh, that came out of our uh, of our deep dive in, in, into Russia. Um, and the one way I would summarize it, because there are a number of them, uh, might maybe too long to go into them all here, but uh, uh, there, while, there, while Russian economic and demographic trends suggest that over time they may be less capable broadly overall, that doesn't make them less dangerous. Uh, it also doesn't mean that they won't be able to uh, mask locally uh, significant capability uh, to achieve some particular end. And one of those ends is that they're going to seek to maintain uh, escalatory dominance over NATO. And part of that effort is going to be in this continued effort to undermine uh, alliance consensus uh, regarding exactly how to respond to particular provocations. Uh, having said that, they're not, you know, they're, in general, they're going to want to de-escalate uh, and, uh, 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 and not Across the threshold, you know, into a broader conflict, unless something very vital is at stake. Now, of course, in most theaters, uh, the U.S. doesn't really have a military posture abroad without the help of allies and partners, right? We tend to be uh, typically based uh, in those allies and partners operating uh, through or, or uh, off of their territory, from their territory. Talk to us now about the the role of those allies and partners. What are some of the assumptions you made, again, looking out over the next uh, several years, next decade or so, what are some of the assumptions you made about the, the role those allies and partners will play in Europe, specifically regarding their own capabilities as well as their own posture? It's complicated. Uh, you know, not just, and it's not just because of Russian efforts to undermine consensus. Uh, we have allies that see Russia as a threat, but also as a partner at the same time. Uh, and are dependent on you know uh, 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 you know resources from Russia like like uh, like, like natural gas. Um, they also don't always perceive it as a significant military threat. Uh, so there's been some unwillingness to do some of the investment that uh, is required, uh, and for those who you know in order to provide a, a credible deterrent. And for those countries that do, there's a there's a there's an, a um, uh, there's a inability. There's a limited ability to do so. So I kind of divide them into three. You've got Western Europe that uh, you know is more dependent on Russian uh, natural gas. Doesn't see Russia as a significant military threat. Has not been investing in uh, certain in, in high-end combat uh, functions. But they've been doing a lot of other good stuff that we can talk about uh, uh, in terms of uh, improving integration and so on. But uh, then there's the Eastern European nations uh, that do see Russia more as a security threat and a threat to sovereignty, particularly the Baltics, but also Romania. Uh, and then there are the Southern uh, European states that are, they're, they're other focused. Uh, Russia is not really a threat to them uh, in any way, shape or form. And they've got big problems with uh, refugees, uh, economic crisis and other kinds of issues that they're dealing with. So uh, we would not, uh, 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 so they don't really see this as, uh, uh, as, 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 as a significant problem. The problem, though, is 
So where the West may not have, uh, the Western European nations might not be able to provide a credible deterrent. The problem with the uh, Eastern European uh, uh, states and in, and in, and in um, positioning forces there is limited infrastructure. Uh, we had a conversation with the Polish general staff and they uh, made the point that, you know, where you're going to put these, you know, where you're going to put an armored brigade combat team to go hundred kilometers, you're going to drive 400 kilometers. Um, so there would need to be a discussion if you wanted to improve deterrent capability to, uh, to, to, to invest in that infrastructure. And uh, they gave us the indication that that, you know, probably wouldn't come at least not immediately from uh, from Polish sources, and so they would look for help. Um, the uh, uh, so uh, so for those forces to really be mobile, we, we that, that's that's part of what we had to consider in terms of you know uh, in terms of where the the footprint where they would go. But broadly, that's the three kind of ways we were looking at it. You know, the ones who saw saw Russia not uh, not so much a military threat, uh, sometimes as a partner, uh, and those who see it more as a military threat. Um, and then those who uh, just don't really, you know, uh, have a great stake in that in this particular, you know, adversary relationship. Yes, a guy that spent a lot of time looking at Europe, Tony. I, I like your description of Southern Europe being focused uh, in other ways, right? That that's a good a good way to describe it. Now, uh, you guys on the team write in the report. You use this phrase "levers," the notion of levers. Now, I've always thought of levers from the Army perspective as uh, I was once told the three levers available to the CSA, the chief of staff of the army, are training, manning, and modernization. So are those the kind of levers you guys are talking about? What do you mean in the use of that concept, and how does that apply to posture? Well, so it's very much in, in the same sort of, of line that uh, you you put out. And basically, what are the, what are the decisions that the senior leaders can make and uh, in terms of force posture, we identified seven of those. Now, the first three are what folks would, would typically think of in terms of force posture, and that is, you know, stationing. Now, where am I going to put certain units uh, within Europe? Uh, and the three things that we've, we focused on particularly are command and control. Uh, many of your listeners probably have heard about, you know, the activation of a reactivation of Fifth Corps that is going to have part of its element forward uh, full time in, in Europe. And so the command and control really at the operational level. And this, uh, as Tony had kind of referenced earlier on, uh, it was, uh, you know, Arctic had done a lot of the work in terms of multi-domain operations and calibrated force posture, looking out at the 2028 timeframe. And it was not a coincidence that Secretary Esper gave us 2028 as our point too. So in some ways we were asked, uh, what we were answering was, what should the calibrated force posture, which is one of the three tenets of the multi-domain operations concept, what does that look like in Europe? And uh, the, the two things that the multi-domain operations concept was really focusing on was command and control, multi-domain command and control. Uh, and so that's probably their field army or core headquarters. And what, what should its posture be? The second was Secretary Esper's number one modernization priority, which is the long-range fires and what does that do uh, within Europe? And so that was our second lever. And then the third one is, is kind of the classic of brigade combat team. And so large, large uh, numbers of you know tanks and, and uh, paratroopers and everything else like that. How many of them and where should they be stationed? But force posture is, is more than just you know where where we have certain units stationed. And so the the other four levers uh, are a little bit more uh, intangible or, or not necessarily what uh, the standard thing you would think of. Uh, the first is the geographic footprint of, of training and activities. And so even if a unit 
might be stationed in the United States or might be stationed, you know, Vicenza, where we have a, an airborne brigade. One of our contributing authors is now the brigade commander there. Uh, you know, if they do a lot of activity within, you know, the the, the Balkans uh, and that, you know, Black Sea area, then that has a that's part of our posture as well. And so, do we want to spread out our training activity uh, around all of Europe, or do we want to just focus it in one region? There's also investments with high implementation costs, and so, uh, you know, from year to year, balancing those budgets, you have to make sure that you you don't break the bank, and so. Uh, there's some things that are just very expensive and must be bought up front, like munition stockpiles or, or, or large investments in infrastructure to things like, you know, hardened, you know, facilities. There's also some investments over time. And uh, some of the, the, the force posture uh, that we looked at uh, coming off of, you know, the national defense strategy that talk about dynamic force employment. And so it envisions every year having some pretty large exercises like the Defender 20, uh, which was unfortunately was curtailed in Europe. But, uh, you know, those are pretty large costs. And if you see large training bills from year to year, that's something that they have to take into account. Uh, and finally, the last one was, you know, the, the, the op tempo on high demand units. And so things like logistics and mobility, uh, special forces uh, have a very high operations tempo. Also the theater, air and missile defense. I don't think anything has a, a higher uh, demand from the combatant commands and our, you know, Patriot, uh, you know, batteries. And so looking at those seven different levers are really within the decision space of, of the secretary and the chief and, and uh, you know, the joint staff as we talk about global force management. And that's what we were trying to drive on is where is the decision space and, and focus it on that. Okay, so once you identified the, the decision space, the, the levers as you've outlined them, I understand you then applied those against a set of risk factors and some other criteria. And then you came up with some outcomes of that analysis. Before we get to the outcomes, what were those risk factors and, and the criteria that you measured against the levers? So we had 17 criteria and risk factors overall uh, divided into four different categories, but I'll kind of focus on the eight that we determined were critical enough to factor into the secretary's decision about force posture. The other nine that I won't go into in depth, those were important enough that we needed to understand what the force posture, what, the, what those implications were for any particular force posture, uh, but we determined that they, they weren't important enough to drive a decision. So an example of this is what would be the impact on some of these force postures in our ability to project power from Europe into the Middle East or North Africa? It's important that we know the answer to that. We don't make a recommendation where we don't know what the implication is, but neither should that necessarily drive uh, our force posture within Europe. And so the, the most important uh, criteria and risk factors we came up with uh, were the ability uh, to defeat and deter armed conflict with Russia over an ally. And so that's important. We, we excluded partners from that. Uh, the effectiveness of competition uh, or the ability to compete below armed conflict with Russia. Uh, the effect of the forced posture on crisis stability and escalation dominance uh, against Russia in terms of a crisis. Uh, the degree to which the forced posture would be provocative to Russia. Uh, and kind of the flip side of this is the, the effect uh, that the different force postures would have on uh, the cohesion of the NATO alliance and on allies. Uh, our sixth was, uh, the, the, or, yeah, sixth was the impact on global readiness for the army and so how much it would uh, impede the army's ability to respond elsewhere. Uh, seventh was uh, the, the danger that we just couldn't implement it because it was too hard in terms of 
budgetary or, or politically or diplomatically. Uh, and then finally, uh, the vulnerability of the different horse postures to steep you know, reductions in the budget in the future. And so we're, do we have to have the same sort of funding that we currently have uh, in order for it to work? And if not, then that would then kind of force the secretary uh, into a position where he might have to break the strategy in order to uh, to balance the books. And so those were the eight factors. Okay, so these are, as you described them, JP, the most important criteria or risk factors that you want to examine through the, I guess, the, the lens of this decision space, the levers that you have or that the Army has at its disposal. So when you hold up the criteria against the various force posture options within this decision space, what was the outcome? So as you would expect from such a diverse list, there were the, the, the main finding was that there were no obvious answers. Uh, no matter which way we went, there was going to be some trade-offs. No alternative performed well in everything uh, because there's just so many things to balance. Uh, now we had so five courses of action and two we basically eliminated immediately because they fell below the minimum acceptable threshold. Uh, one of those was privileged armed conflict. Uh, and that was just too hard to implement. It was too ambitious. Uh, and when we broke it up into two that I'll, I'll discuss here in a moment, but just in terms of the, the, the cost, the domestic politics and what we were asking of allies, we didn't think that the army would be able to deliver on that. Then the, the other one was dynamic force employment, which this is kind of where OSD was pushing us that they constantly wanted army forces flowing in and out and all of these uh, different uh, exercises. And that was just too vulnerable to future drops in the budget because uh, these things are just so expensive year to year. And if we suddenly in, in the future had, had far less money, then we'd have nothing to show for everything that was spent in the meantime. And so our whole strategy was based upon high year to year costs. Uh, and Secretary Esper had, had explicitly told us that that was one of his concerns. So we, we, we viewed that as being out of bounds. Uh, that left us with three. So one of these was global competition, which inside the group we kind of called the status quo plus because it was the closest to our current uh, status and, and basically just had some some select upgrades. Then we also had a build visible presence, uh, which kind of focused on what we could call crowd pleasing or ally pleasing uh, actions like sending a lot more tanks over or, or you know, re repositioning units and, and having more tanks forward within, uh, you know, northeastern Europe. Uh, and our final remaining alternative was to invest in a multi domain alliance. Uh, when this focused on on two changes that, as I had said earlier, kind of really grew out of the multi-domain operations uh, concept. Uh, and one was putting the Army's new long-range fire systems in Europe, where uh, the MDO writing team had found that had a significant impact on, on the theater, really enabled the Air Force and our allies to do a lot of things. Uh, the second was building and integrating an operational headquarters to enable what is now being called within uh, within the, the Pentagon uh, C 2 so combined joint all domain command and control. And uh, uh, of those, we we ended up coming with a multi domain alliance, and there's really four reasons that kind of stand out about that. First. Uh, it really allowed new and innovative operational approaches that we can't do uh, currently. And so it allowed us to kind of unpick, uh, you know, the Russian system of, of waging war, which had been designed to, to counter the, the, the way the joint force operates. Uh, the second one was that it really focuses on our comparative advantage uh, as, a, as a country uh, in comparison to our allies. And so some things that they just could not provide for themselves. And so we make, wanted to make sure that we, we highlighted those. Uh, but then also on the same point, it, it didn't replicate 
what the allies could provide for themselves. And so we weren't providing you know, large armored formations, which is well within the capacity of most of our allies. Uh, and then also there was a lot of flexibility. And so if later on we decided we did need more you know, US tanks in addition to it, if you know, later on we could go ahead and try to do that, but we wanted to focus first things first. Uh, and that was what uh, investing multi-domain alliance thought we, we, we thought that it did the best. Well, JP, uh, Tony, thank you so much for uh, providing this overview for us. Uh, this is really, uh, listeners, I can tell you, it's a really fascinating, very in-depth study. Uh, as JP was highlighting there, it, it, it includes or addresses current concepts that the Army and the Pentagon are using in terms of uh, preparing the force and posturing the force. And so it's, it's an excellent contribution to that debate and that discussion, which continues to unfold uh, in the halls of the Pentagon. So, gentlemen, thank you very much again. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Listeners, you can find this study again uh, entitled Striking the Balance, U.S. Army Force Posture in Europe 2028 at the SSI website, which is ssi.armywarcollege.edu. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.